This morning, I have the privilege to invite up for our scripture reader, G, who is visiting from Korea. So G is a member of our church and is uh, teaching in Korea right now. So make sure to say hi after the service. And she was gracious enough to agree to read uh, our passage this morning. So uh, turn to Acts. What do you mean? Well, like you just felt compelled, like you just sort of had. So stand where you are. Turn to the New Testament book of Acts. We'll be in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. He will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This is the word of God. Thank you, G. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would um, animate and illuminate your word, that it would, in fact, be the living word of God for us today. Soften our hearts, uh, take the places in us that have become hard and like stone, return them to flesh uh, so that we could receive exactly what it is you have for us today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You can be seated. One of the questions I get very regularly as a pastor of this particular church is, why do we talk so much about race? Why do we talk so much about racial injustice? Why does New Community Covenant Church care so much about reconciliation? Uh, It's a legitimate question because we do talk about it a lot. And uh, I want to try to answer that rather succinctly today. Uh, I'm going to be pretty short in the sermon, about 15 minutes, and then we'll receive communion together. And those of you who are then able to or interested, I'm going to ask you to just stick around and we'll just have a bit of a conversation um, at, the, at the end of our service where you can raise questions or thoughts or ideas. We do this occasionally as a church, just kind of have a time for reflection uh, after the sermon. Um, so we're starting a new sermon series today called Waking from the Dream. And we'll be looking for three weeks at issues of race, reconciliation. And we'll be coming at this from a variety of different, I think, pretty creative angles um, that will be very engaging to you. If you're not in a community group, this is the time to join a community group. Um, Dennis and Juan have done a really good job putting together a very dynamic, creative community group curriculum uh, for these next three weeks. Um, So uh, Juan is up here on the front row. You can see him after the service if you're not currently in a group or just send an email to the church. So why is it that we care so much about issues of of race and reconciliation uh, as a church? The passage that G uh, G just read for us, uh, it comes very early on in the life of the church. And already we see a potential division uh, in in this early church. Um, Conversion to Jesus in these days often meant that you would be separated from your family. Saying yes to Jesus had the potential consequences of being ostracized, by your family. And this was particularly true at baptism. Once you were baptized, you were publicly identified with the family of God, uh, following the way of Jesus. And this could mean that you would be disowned by your family. So when we read the the book of Acts, and we see this radical care in community, a lot of it is just practical. People needed a new family because their old families, in many cases, would have nothing to do with them. And this was a especially true and important for widows. 
Widows at this time and in this place depended on their families for their, uh, for their well-being, to be, to be cared for. And so widows in the early church uh, were now being cared for by their new family, by women and men who they weren't related to, but who were now treating them as family, even as their biological families may have, have disowned them. So we, we see in our passage uh, Hellenistic Jewish widows and Hebraic Jewish widows. The Hebraic Jews uh, were Jews who would have remained in Israel during times of occupation and exile. They maintained their Jewish cultural identity. They spoke a Hebrew or Aramaic. The Hellenistic Jews were Jews who had been scattered during times of occupation and exile. And they would have lived in different uh, Roman-occupied uh, territories. And so over time and over generations, they began to adapt to Greek and Roman culture. They maybe didn't speak Hebrew or Aramaic anymore. They may have spoken uh, Greek. Their cultures, their traditions, their customs uh, began to shift to be more Hellenistic than Hebraic. Now, our passage takes place in Jerusalem. So you can imagine that in the early church, the, the Hebraic Jews in Jerusalem probably had a higher status than the Hellenistic Jews. Okay? Right, does that make sense so far? Can I get the background picture here? And that's where this division comes from. A complaint arises And it's made known that the Hellenistic Jewish widows are being overlooked in the practical areas of care and concern for the widows in the early church. Now, um, maybe this doesn't seem like that big of a deal to to us. Maybe this kind of division seems um, pretty small. In a country like ours, where uh, a white law enforcement officer can shoot and kill a 12-year-old a black boy with impunity. In a country like ours that has a history of having singled out Chinese immigrants for legal exclusion. Uh, In a country like ours that currently is vilifying Latino women and men while simultaneously depending economically on their labor. In this country, a disparity like we find in Acts, a disparity... Uh, based on, on, on cultural differences between those who share so much uh, ethnic and religious background in common, maybe this division doesn't seem like a, a very big deal. And, and maybe, relatively speaking, it's not. We could actually find much more obvious uh, threats to the family of God later on in the New Testament. But this is really the first division faced by the early church. And so I think it's worth paying special attention to. Three things to notice very briefly here. First, the early church expected relational justice. The the early church expected there to be justice within the family of God. Now maybe, again, that doesn't seem like a a big deal to you, but, but they expected equity within this new family that God was creating through Jesus. Does that seem small? To simply expect there to be justice? But how about us? Do do we uh, expect um, anything different than churches in wealthier communities having budget surpluses while churches in poorer communities struggle with with the basics? Do we expect anything different than a predominantly white churches being uh, ignorant of the struggles experienced by black, brown, and immigrant congregations? Do we expect anything different, even in our own church, 
than those who have access to generational wealth, cultural acceptance, ending up having greater wealth and even better health. The early church, the church that we find in Acts, expected there to be justice, relational justice within the family of God, which leads to the second observation. They told the truth about injustice. When it became clear in this case that something was not as it should be, people spoke up. They could tell the truth about this injustice because they expected that within God's family, justice would be done. Which leads to the the last observation, which is that when the injustice was revealed, they organized themselves for justice. Some very practical ways. The apostles said, okay, let's designate some leaders who can take this on and make sure that it doesn't happen again. The injustice was identified. The church organized itself so that justice could be done. In this case, widows who'd been abandoned by their families would now be cared for with dignity regardless of their cultural background. I'm hopeful that all of this sounds uh, very straightforward, borderline simplistic to you. The early church expected justice, they told the truth about injustice, and then they organized themselves for justice once injustice was identified. It's not rocket science, right? This became more and more important as the church grew, and it came to include not only Hellenistic Jews, but actual Greeks and Romans, Africans and Asians. This simple, straightforward strategy was deeply important to the early church. So I wonder, how is it that that what can seem like such a simple and effective strategy appears to be impossible for churches and Christians in America to grasp? Or to put the question a little bit more positively, what allowed the early church to pursue relational justice with such clarity and courage? What allowed the early church to pursue relational justice with such clarity and courage? And to answer that, I want to look at a second passage, the one that I mentioned to our kids. Romans chapter 11, verses 16 through 24. I read the first couple of verses to them. Uh, Let me read uh, the, the entire passage to you. Romans chapter 11, verses 16 through 24. Paul is writing to the church in Rome that is made up mostly of Gentiles. And these Gentile Christians have begun to wonder, is there actually going to be a place within the family of God uh, for the Jews, for the nation of Israel? Beginning in verse 16. If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourselves to be superior to those other branches. Hopefully you're picturing the pictures we saw earlier. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, well, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches... He will not spare you either. Verse 22. 
Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree. It's a, a rather long and elaborate metaphor that Paul is using here. The very beginning in verse 16, he's using a sacrificial metaphor about first fruits. He's saying that those Jews who have already submitted their lives to Jesus are proof that the way remains open to Israel. But then very quickly, he switches to this agricultural metaphor, this image of a cultivated olive branch being grafted into the root system of a wild olive tree. And I don't need to say anything more about this metaphor because I think we saw it clearly with our children a minute ago. Paul is saying a lot here, but there's one very important thing for us this morning, and it's this. For Gentile Christians, there must always be a visceral memory of our inclusion into God's family through Jesus. The roots of this family are God's election of Israel of God's mission moving through the people of Israel. Jesus came and stood in for Israel, receiving the consequences of her rebellion and our rebellion and fulfilling her vocation to bless the world. Through Jesus, it becomes possible for Gentiles to be included into the family of God. To say it more simply, unless you are a Jewish Christian this morning, you were an outsider to God's family who has been graciously and radically welcomed into the family by Jesus. As far as I know, and I might not know completely, we're all of us Gentile Christians today. All of us can say clearly that we were outsiders to God's family who have been welcomed in radically by Jesus. Here's where it gets very important. Paul says it, the early church in Acts demonstrates it, Relational justice is not peripheral to the gospel. Relational justice is not even a distant implication of the gospel. Relational justice and reconciliation are central to the gospel because they are evidence of what God has done through Jesus. Amen? Our being grafted into God's family tree is a demonstration of the power of the gospel. The welcome we outsiders have received into the family of God is the immediate outworking of Christ's atoning death and his victorious resurrection. Are you with me? The reconciling gospel that we're talking about now was at work among those Hellenistic and Hebraic Jews as they pursued justice for their widows. The same reconciling gospel would be at work a few chapters later in the very first multi-ethnic church in the city of Antioch, a, a congregation that was made up of Jews, Africans, Arabs, Greeks, Romans, Syrians, and Asians. Throughout the New Testament, we see the gospel grafting outsiders 
into God's family tree. The gospel overcomes divisions between ethnicities, cultures, and classes. And when relational injustice does appear in the early church, it is confronted by appealing to the logic and the power of this gospel. This gospel that has made outsiders and enemies into family members of God's family. The thing is, you won't find any mention of the gospel overcoming racial divides in the Bible. Race, as you and I think about it, as a social construct, had not been invented when the Bible was written. Tragically, um, but hopefully honestly today, race as the social construct we experience it today was birthed from a heretical Christian theology. This theology replaced the Jewish roots of God's family tree with European whiteness. There are um, theological uh, terms and nuances for this heresy, uh, but what matters for us this morning is that when the powerful European church traded God's specific redemptive movement through Israel, when they traded that for a racial construct that was built on privilege and oppression, the gospel itself was undermined. With whiteness replacing Israel as the roots of God's family tree, Not only were racial divides impossible to overcome, racial divides were constructed. Not only that, the cultural, class, and ethnic diversity that had originally proved the power of the gospel in the early church, these two became unbridgeable chasms. And from this heretical foundation, was built an entire social science that categorized and divided people based on imposed racial categories. Categories that were then compared to whiteness in order to determine how entire cultures and ethnicities would be understood and treated. And so it was no longer God's grace that opened the door to joining God's family, a family that expected relational justice within its diversity as an expression of the gospel. Now, it was whiteness with its languages, cultures, social norms, and warped theologies that became the doorway to Christianity. The ugly consequences of this heresy are evident all around us. From the politicians who can, in a single speech, proclaim their Christian credentials while simultaneously articulating xenophobic, nationalistic policies. We can see it in public schools that can safely be ignored and dismantled by the powers that be 
because the black and brown students they represent were never supposed to attain the American dream in the first place. But I think for us, for Christians, most tragically is the way that this heresy has immobilized so many churches, particularly so many American and Euro-centered churches from expressing the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why this matters to us. This is why racial righteousness and reconciliation are central to who we are as a church. The gospel of Jesus Christ is at stake. Amen? We must regularly and intentionally make plain the beautiful truth, the beautiful truth that generations of warped theology and blind practices have obscured. We we must wake up from the dream that is in fact a nightmare. We must wake up to the gospel with all of its implications. And this means some things for us. This means that those of us who find our socially constructed race affirmed and normalized by a society built on white supremacy, we must come to church and hear the call to repent. We must come to rejoice in our complete unworthiness and in God's complete grace that He would graft us into his family. This means that those of us who find ourselves dehumanized and illegitimized on a daily basis in our society must come to church and hear the old story again and again. The story of how in Christ there is no hierarchy. There is no privilege. There is no prejudice. We must come to hear how in Christ the beauty of our God-given humanity as expressed in the particularities of our bodies and our languages, our cultures and histories and even our struggles, that this humanity is reason to celebrate and take pride. This means that, that those of us who've been made invisible by a black white, binary society must come to church and find the space to remember. To remember what has been forgotten. To reclaim what has been stolen. To restore the memory of God's presence to previous generations. Generations of ancestors whose culture was tied not to the deceitful racial constructs of our country, but to God's creation itself, to geographies and landscapes that bear witness to the Creator. This is why racial reconciliation and righteousness mean so much to our church. We believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is at stake. Amen? But as I've been saying recently, it's one thing to say that we as a church care about something. It's something entirely different to say that I as an individual care about it. 
So I want to end by putting a question up on the screen for you, and it's a question that we will come back to uh, next week. If you're taking notes, write it down. If you're not taking notes, write it down. If you don't have a pen, take a picture of the screen. If you don't have a phone, find me after the service and I'll tell it to you. Based on your understanding of Jesus, Jesus, the one who makes possible our being grafted into God's family, based on your understanding of Jesus, what should your response to racial injustice be? We've said that we care about this. What does it look like for you? And we'll come back to this question next week.